Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. My guest today is Richard Ascroft. And today, I just, I just want to start with saying, you may have read the title, of this episode and I want to say we have a warning on this episode. We are discretion advised because we are going to discuss Jesus Christ and this might be a controversial episode. So so if you are a real or a Christian, you might not like what you have to say. And I just want to begin opening that you have been warned. Turn this episode off if you don't you don't want to hear what you have to say because we're going to historically maybe not from the we don't discuss the Bible as well. But we're going to look at the facts as well. So if you don't like what I have to say, you might want to turn this episode off. This might not be for you. But uh, Richard, how did you come... This might be obvious answer, but how did you come across studying the historical Jesus? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, many people working in the field... Um, that I work in, in biblical studies, just, just get hooked on it because of historical curiosity. Some people get hooked on it because they grew up in the church and, and, um, uh, and, and encountered the Bible that way. For me, it was a bit of both. I didn't grow up in the church, but in my teenage years, took an interest in the Bible, uh, started going to a church. Uh, I no longer do go to a church, but um, it was that in that period I got hooked on studying the the history behind these texts and and how these texts were constructed and what we can learn from them um, about the characters like Paul, like Peter, and like Jesus, of course. And we discuss this off camera as well because, uh, but the Bible is your main source of study, right? But if you go on studying historical Jesus, the champion a lot because it wasn't well known at the time that became afterwards right like a few decades a few centuries so how there can't be a lot of work and sources around jesus to study on the foreign the era other than the bible what he has to say so it has to be kind of hard to to the research particularly if you want the historical jesus it's a particular challenge um the lack of the lack of sources as you rightly point out has not not ever stopped the flow of people researching and and producing books claiming to give an accurate picture of the historical Jesus. Um, but we don't we don't have uh, any real. We have no archaeological evidence from Jesus himself, of course. Very little from from um, other 
kind of characters that time. More so from the period he lived in terms of Greco-Roman archaeology. So we have a very good understanding of what life was like generally for people. Um, But we don't have a lot of sources that talk about Jesus himself outside of the biblical texts from the first century. And the biblical texts themselves are fraught with difficulty in terms of reliability as historical sources. And of course, I don't want to come back to this, but I believe it was Pliny Yonder. That's that's the first time we get Christians in the Roman sources, right? When he's asked the emperor, "What are we going to do with these Christians?" And of course, you have Nero who loves persecuting the Christians. Yeah. But I believe Pliny the Yonder is the first time we kind of hear Christians in that term. In that term, you get um, so yes, but and you so that's um, early in the second century, around one ten. Uh, but you also get Suetonius mentioning uh, the persecution uh, or at least prosecution of Christians under under Nero. Uh, Tacitus does seem to mention um, that Christ was, that, that a figure was uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate. So these are all kind of clustered around the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. So we get a little bit of attestation for people who are following somebody named Christ and even that there was a figure named Christ. So very few people. determined that he was real. He was the, yeah, did exist. Yeah. yeah no, very few historians that uh, certainly no one I know would deny there was somebody named Jesus from Nazareth mm-hmm. who, who died on a Roman cross. Beyond that, then the sources become much more difficult to interpret. Um, but it used to be people would say, well, he's, a complete, uh, completely invented character, and there there is credible historical evidence that he was a real person. So that's beginning this birth, and as as we know, the Christian Gregorian calendar beginning year zero. But it's actually the the, the I think stated that he was born not in the year zero as we so where we start from, but a few years earlier. So why why aren't we that saying twenty twenty seven right now or twenty twenty five for example? And let's begin with the birth of Christ. This is kind of a two part question, but let's begin there. Sure. Well yeah the dating question is is interesting and it takes us right to the heart of our sources. Um so so in the Gospel of Matthew it says that Jesus, when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was alive. And that when Herod the Great was told about a Messiah in Bethlehem, he actually deployed people to go and kill babies in the hope to, to kill this Messiah. We know Herod the Great died somewhere between 6 and 4 BCE. So if Matthew's story is correct, then Jesus had to have been born before the, the supposed year zero. So it, it pushes it back. Now, we could also say, well, maybe that was an invented tradition so that Jesus was born at the, the fictional year zero. Um, but people tend to, to sort of give some credence, at least, to Jesus being born in those four to six years earlier. Now, I, but this this is a joke in uh, Life of Brian as well. I mean, of course, go back to the movie again. But there, I heard another podcast as well last year, I think, where they said that there was a lot of messiah. There really was a lot of messiahs around in that yeah. time, pretend, pre- pretending to be messiah. Yeah. Right? So it should have been just and didn't necessarily have to be Jesus at that time of Herod the Great necessarily, right? 
Yeah, no, correct. I mean, there were um, a lot of people who either cl- claimed that they were the Messiah or uh, other people claimed they were the Messiah. There were, um, so within Judaism, um, they were they were in a land, uh, Jude- people living in Judea uh, were living under Roman occupation. They were not happy about this. Uh, they were looking for God to break in. They, they'd gone through centuries of disruption uh, to the, the overarching narrative of how God would bless them. And so they were looking for God to step up and step in and, you know, with some kind of kingly or prophetic Messiah. So people were were looking. And of course, when people are looking, they can find what they want. And uh, so there were many people that uh, were claiming to be Messiah, were proclaimed Messiah. So Jesus wasn't alone. And so, yeah, some of these stories might have gotten mixed up or overlapped. Um, I'm not allowed to ask because, you know, I did have a question, but let's talk about, we'll come back to that later, but let's talk about the controversial virgin birth. How how was that? What, well, how can we interpret that into real yeah, uh, events here? So um, the the. Bible itself doesn't record the virgin birth. It records a virginal conception. Uh, so it, it, um, Mary is, um, is proclaimed to be pregnant without the intervention of a male. The actual story of uh, the virgin birth occurs in a second century document called the Proto Evangelium Jacobi or the first gospel of James. And that gives much more detail about how once Mary had delivered Jesus, um, all of her internal parts were, were still intact, that, that she had no evidence of ever having been pregnancy, pregnant and delivering a child. Um, but the story itself, to go back to that, the, the virginal conception story, um, fits with other stories we know from the time that uh, for, for special people, people that are set aside by the gods for some special purpose, that are either um, divinely conceived um, physically or in in some kind of um, uh, miraculous way, and so it's mapping Jesus onto other divine figures at the time. Now, well, what, because you, and I don't want to come back to this again. You said when, when you get the Messiah, and you see this in other religions as well. Was it kind of a particular hard time to be Jewish in the Roman Empire? Is that why we have so when Messiahs are wanting to bring? The great the good for the Jewish people. That is that why you have so many messiahs that they want to make them believe in something again. Is that could that be why we had why it was so many messiahs in that era? Uh, that that would certainly ex- explain um, the desire for um, for liberation that we we find um, uh, at, at that time, and and not just through a messiah. It wasn't it wasn't that everyone was looking for a messiah? Other people had other ways, you know, looking for restoring the sacrificial system to so. The, the temple in Jerusalem became a focal point for for the sacrifices. Um, but the broader question was it was it tough to be Jewish under Roman occupation? The, the short answer is yes. It, but it was tough to be it was tough to be not Roman under Roman occupation, no matter where you were. I think it was particularly tough for the for for people in Judea because um, they're on the fringes of the empire. Uh, generally, people that were put there administratively didn't want to be there. Uh, it was a conflict zone with with other people. And also, and, and this is the big one, um, because uh, Jews are monotheists, the Romans didn't get it on the one hand. On the other hand, they did respect that Judaism was 
an ancient religion. So we even have evidence that um, they they passed some laws banning collective groups, but they gave an exemption to Jewish groups because they had been around for so much longer than the other groups. So it, it's a, a funny dichotomy of it was a very rough time for Jews, but it also they did get some recognition and concessions, but begrudgingly because the Romans really didn't know what to do with monotheists. They considered monotheists to be atheists because they denied all the other gods. So let's talk about Joseph and Maria themselves. How how did did they kind of try to promote that kind of like a child stars today kind of thing that their son because you had of course a story with the, the three wise men how and it kind of sounds like a kind of child star what you see today in Hollywood and how the parents kind of try to promote their child did they kind of try to do the same with their Jesus in a sense? Um. I would say no. I don't put a lot of credence into those stories, so um, I'm I'm not sure. I so let me back up and say I think every parent wants to promote their child as a child star, so they, you know, they probably did. Um, but those stories that we read now were written um, decades after Jesus died. So you know, presumably he died somewhere between 27 and, and 33 years old. Um, he and then those stories don't even get the narratives in Matthew and Luke aren't written down probably for another forty to fifty years even even if the stories have been circulating um, and the story for example of the wise men and Matthew and the one we mentioned about Herod killing the two year olds and and the fleeing to Egypt that just sounds too much like a rewriting of the story of Moses yeah. And so I don't think it was his, the parents promoting Jesus as a child. I think it's Matthew promoting Jesus through a story about uh, events around his birth and his early childhood. So I, th- I think there is promotion there, but I think it's Matthew is is writing that promotional material. So let's talk about his childhood, what it may actually have been like. When did he start to kind of see it feel like how it was, it was like growing up, and because Joseph was a carpenter, right? That, that's yeah. what he did. And what was it like? What was he going to become an apprentice of Joseph? And, because he wasn't the only child, was he? And they did have brothers and sisters at that time. Yeah, it's um the text. So in the biblical text itself, it talks about Jesus having brothers and sisters. Uh, different Christian denominations interpret that differently. Some some suggest these are stepbrothers from Joseph's previous marriage. Others suggest that these are actually cousins. Uh, and that's because, of course, they don't want to say Mary had more children, that she was always a virgin. Um, and others just say, no, no, he had he had brothers and sisters. Um, but yes, he would have grown up, it seems, in a little town, the little village of Nazareth, probably about 100 families, um, probably not well-to-do, but it's in the Galilee. Um Joseph, it says, the text say Joseph was a carpenter. Uh, the pattern that we would expect is that jo- any son of a carpenter would apprentice under his father and and take on that kind of uh, business. It's um, It seems unlikely to me that he was a carpenter that like whittled little tiny trinkets. He more likely did bigger construction. And um, at one point, we know there's the uh, construction of Sepphoris, which is a major town that the Romans were working on uh, that overlaps the time Jesus would be growing up. And it's about an hour's walk each way. Conceivably, Joseph could have walked 
up there every day in the morning and done construction work as a carpenter in that city. Um, and then Jesus would have followed once he started apprenticing, probably at a fairly young age. Do I have any direct evidence that Jesus did that? No. All of this comes from, like, archaeologically, what yeah. did Nazareth look like? What did Sepphoris look like? What were patterns for people at that time? But we don't have any direct evidence that, that Jesus did exactly what I just said. No, I'm not very, fam- I must confess that I'm not very familiar with Jewish history myself. I'm going to read a book soon about Jewish history in Europe, but uh, I'm, for now, I'm not really familiar with and as we know, Jerusalem is a religious city. And as, as we will see, it will be thousand years later under the Crusades, it will be a contro- very controversial city as yeah. well. But what was Jerusalem's status at the time of Jesus? Because he it's, it's does seem to spend a lot of time there as well. Yeah, Jerusalem was, um, I mean, it was the capital in terms of the most important city and and uh, religiously, economically, politically, it, it it was the draw everywhere. Um, and that during the time that Jesus was alive, the temple was still uh, standing and still operating in Jerusalem. And so, with the temple, there was a whole system of sacrifices that. Um, People could go to the temple and make a sacrifice, uh, asking God to forgive them for their sins, um, or asking for special blessings. And people would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to do that, or they might go there on Passover for a celebration where there would be extra sacrifices. Uh, once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to ask for uh, forgiveness on behalf of the nation. So it's, it's very important religiously. Um, but also, that's where, um, you know, uh, uh, politically, you would have had the main administrative body of the Romans would have operated out of there. Uh, not, not, not just there, they, they were also at Caesarea Maritima, which is a, a, a city on the coast, which was probably much more pleasant for the Roman administrators than was Jerusalem. They would not have liked being in Jerusalem, but they knew it was necessary. But Jerusalem could also then be a hotbed of sedition, uh, of rebellion. And so um, there were we do, there were groups that were um, not just opposed to Ro- the Romans, but violently opposed. They, they actually um, would, would enact uh, um, uh, violence on, 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 the, on Roman administrators. So, you know, from the Jewish point of view, these are freedom fighters. They're fighting for the freedom of the, of the Jewish people. From the Roman point of view, these are terrorists. And, you know, this is always the rhetoric. It depends what side you're on. And of course, it got 70 years, somewhat years later, the revolt of Judea. Yeah. 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 So so in 68, the, it, it explodes into a war and um, where the Jews are, are thoroughly defeated and the temple is torn down, never to be rebuilt. So in 70, that temple gets destroyed. And that's the end of sacrifice. That's the end of the sacrificial system. Mm-hmm. Um, but this might be a good place to then just say, in the Bible, it talks about Sadducees and Pharisees coming to Jesus. The Sadducees were the ones that would have been linked to Jerusalem and the sacrificial system. But the Pharisees would have been teachers. And that's where we would place Jesus. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was like the Pharisees trying to, to interpret Torah, the law, for everyday life. How do I live? With, you know, What does God want me to do in this situation or in this situation? And so um, Jesus is a teacher in that vein 
Um, and so his disciples, sim- disciples simply means student. He gathered students around him and he was teaching them how to live according to Jewish law. This, this is this this is what he was doing. How, so, how does a draw number about doing this? Does a draw on the kind of breast tour, propaganda tour, in a, in a sense? Yeah, in, in some ways, he probably um, started. Uh, I, I mean, again, this is my fabrication. I, I can't prove this definitively, but going by patterns, um, he, he maybe even talked to people while he was working, and they realized maybe he 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 was a bit more insightful about uh torah than than other people were and they came to him to ask him questions and then he starts to take on that role of teacher and i suspect at a certain point he's got enough people that are interested in him they say you know what we should go to a different city the people there want to hear you talk mm-hmm. and so they go to Kafarnam on the coast or they go so, so he was a good orator he was he knew it was it seems that to tra- to attract disciples like that, you would need to be a good orator. Yes, yeah. So, so we, of course, I want to go back a little further. But when does he realize that he wanted to be a rabbi? And, and, oh. and the, because he, of course, had a famous story in the Bible where he goes to the temple and he, his mother finds him there and he says, "Oh, I want to be close to my father." Yeah, so he got the famous. So, but when does he realize? Do we? Would he have an idea that a rabbi is what he wants to become? Yeah, I, again, that story, it's, it's only in Luke's gospel. And, you know, it actually, you know, I, I don't think it, it happened historically exactly the way Luke told it. But it does reflect uh, what many parents, myself included, find with children, that you have hopes that they will do one thing, but they decide they want to do something else. Mm-hmm. And um, so it certainly rings true with, you know, Joseph might have said, I want my son to be a carpenter like me. But Jesus might have been much more drawn to uh, reading books or at least arguing with other teachers. Um, and, and so it's hard to know when he realized that he wanted to do something different. But that story probably started circulating as a way to say very early on, this guy, this guy named Jesus, not only knew he wanted to be a teacher, but proved himself by, by talking to teachers that were much older than he was. So, of course, we talked about how to talk about as well is the name of Jesus. The while it is neutral in the English version, Jesus, but it was more like Josephus would be more likely, right? Uh, yeah, it'd be Yeshua, um, which which technically would be Joshua. Joshua, that's in, right. Yeah. In, in Hebrew um, and, or and Aramaic, uh, but uh, the texts we have are all written in Greek, and so they write the name. Yeshua in Greek letters is Jesus. So, so this is how we know him. But that's, if you went to Nazareth in the first century and said, you know, where's Jesus? They would, they would have, they would have understood, but they would have paused for a minute. Like, oh, you mean Yeshua, mm-hmm. right? Or Joshua. Something we have to discuss and something, and this might, I don't know how many people need to hear this. I mean, this just is offline as well, but not offline, but off the record, and that Jesus was definitely not white. (laughs) Most definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, just going by patterns, um, he's in the area that, for better or worse, we call the Middle East. And and so, um, you know, his complexion would have been much darker than is often depicted in paintings that are coming out of Europe. 
throughout so you know the early from the early days on through the um the renaissance and things um in north america particularly in the united states there's a famous picture that um, was given to veterans returning from the war in the 40s. Bar, it's a painting by Werner Eck, and it's a, a portrait of Jesus. He's got these paste, pasty white skin and blue eyes and long flowing hair. And so all of these houses had this picture of Jesus. And so people growing up said, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. Well, it's it's nothing at all what Jesus looked like. He, he wouldn't have had blonde hair. He wouldn't have had blue eyes. And he certainly wouldn't have been uh, white skinned and, and pasty white skinned at that. Um, I hate the other words. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. <laughs> but, but every movie that comes out through the 50s and 60s, especially the 60s, that depicts Jesus casts a white American or a white European mm-hmm. in that role. Some of them are... So we talked earlier about how there were several messiahs at the time. Did, did, did Jesus look at himself as kind of a messiah at this point, or did he just want to be an orator like a normal rabbi? Yeah, there's a lot of debate about um, whether Jesus at a certain point realized that he was somehow special and set apart. And so messiah or um, messiah is the Hebrew really just means um, anointed by God. So the way David was, so especially set apart by God. Um, so in the in the Gospels, it, there are stories of Jesus going around teaching, saying things like "Love God, love your neighbor, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you." He's simply teaching um, ways to live. That sounds like a, a something a rabbi would do. But there's also passages where he goes around with woe say woe to you jerusalem or um tells a story about how when people die they will be judged either sheep go to heaven or goats and Mm -hmm. and 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 go to eternal damnation but that's what we call apocalyptic theology Uh, if it's hard to know whether jesus is one or the other or both Mm -hmm. but with that apocalyptic theology it does move a person beyond just being a rabbi just being a teacher into something more that they must have had a self-awareness of yeah seeing themselves as god's agent Uh, so i do think jesus did get there i think jesus i mean my reading of the text is they don't just invent that for jesus he he really thought he would have a hand in bringing about the end of the world whereas paris Paris, like oh not not here too another none didn't really we have not that we don't have enough messiahs these days yeah yeah. Yeah, I think like like uh any um any messiah um uh you know um thinks of themselves as having a hand in God's work, but thinks that the others don't. He doesn't seem to put himself up against anyone else that we know. We know of the other messiah messianic movements from um from other sources, not from him. He's more does more battle with the Sadducees and Pharisees. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if, he, if the, 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 the other messiah stood alone, or if this was kind, kind of a brawl fight between them. Like I'm the wrong messiah. No, that's me. No, I think I, I think um, Monty Python's movie, The Life of Brian, satirizes that. I think mm-hmm. it doesn't. Um, but we don't get evidence of that kind of fight. Um, one of the other people that. No, just a messiah fight. Right, exactly. Well, I think I think where the competition lied for early Christians were in followers of John the Baptist, 
who thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. And so then the stories, by the time they make it into the Gospels, have exactly that. In John's Gospel, John the Baptist literally says, why are you following me? There's Jesus. You should follow him. He's the real Messiah. Mm. So it's not a Messiah fight. The fight's already been won. Yeah. That, to be honest, though, that's written so much later. I wonder if I do think early on there was competition between the followers of John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus. So let's talk about some of the mythological things that happens in the Bible, like him turning water into wine. And I kind of picture how this goes. Okay, he, Jesus is like, uh, hey, look over there, that's the Roman Emperor. And quickly, let's just switch the glasses with wine switch before they turn around. But how, how yeah. when does these stories and then turn into a blind man and him walking the water? That wasn't from nature, right? That wasn't something. Yeah, yeah the, these stories um, are so, almost certainly from later. And, um, you know, the miraculous elements get added to it. Um, I'm sure Jesus was compassionate. I'm sure he. Um, went to see the sick, and I'm sure he he talked to them and maybe even laid hands on them to bless them. But in the stories that are told later, there's some kind of miraculous cure that takes place, or he's able to calm st- stormy waters, or as you say, turn water into wine, or produce 5,000 loaves of fish. And um, scholars have struggled with, you know, just as you say, did something really happen, but it was some kind of trick? Mm. Or are these literary creations that are meant to enhance Jesus' reputation later? And to be honest, they're told in the same way you would expect a, a healing story to be told. So in English, at least, if I were to say, once upon a time, there lived a young boy in the forest. By saying once upon a time, you would know right away that this is a, a, a fairy tale, that this is an invented story. There's little hints like that in the stories about Jesus' miracles that tell us that they're just writing miracle stories the way you would write a miracle story for anyone, mm. that they're not necessarily written as sort of objective history. Another one we have to talk about is Judas as well. And, you know, the synonym for traitor this day, yeah. still today. So when does Judas come into the, the picture with Jesus? Yeah, that's a, a good question as well. So one of the things we don't dispute very much is that Jesus died on, on as, as crucified on a Roman cross. I mean, this is it's got a little bit of attestation outside of the, the New Testament. Um, dying on a Roman cross was dying as a criminal. It's not a religion. He didn't die for his religious beliefs. He died politically. So that's important. The, the Jews could, would have stoned him for blasphemy if it was a religious fight, but he was crucified, which means it's something political. So at some point he must have, must have made it onto the radar of the, the Roman authorities that they would want to, uh, they, they had very little tolerance for anybody that was disruptive. And so he likely was being disruptive through his, his actions and through his words. So, whether or not Judas betrayed him, he probably had disciples who were committed at various levels, some of whom wanted to follow him right into battle and others who were more reluctant. Um, but that gets later gets theologized that, you know, that John's gospel says the devil entered into Judas in order to make him betray Jesus. I, I think that's that's a, a literary way of getting Jesus onto the cross without being a criminal. 
That is, it's an, Judas is an attempt to decriminalize Jesus mm-hmm. in the writings. Um, but the church struggled with it and still does. So Judas is vilified for his actions. He's, as you say, he's called the betrayer. And yet without him, Jesus doesn't get to the cross and so could live to be an old man. And that affects all of the Christian theology around salvation. So there's a thought about it that way, to be honest. That's something I just realized when you mentioned that you don't have a good point there. Yeah. Yeah. What if he, what if he doesn't get betrayed? He, he dies as an old man, some old carpenter up in Nazareth. Um, So there's a fourth century document called the gospel of Judas that struggles with this and has Jesus literally say to Judas, I want you to do this. Everybody's going to hate you, but this is your job. You have to do this. Uh, And there's some hints of that even in the gospels when he says, I know one of you is going to betray me. It's like, he almost knows this has to happen. So something I have have to discuss about about as well is before we, and there's a few characters we have to discuss as well here is Maria Magdalena. Well, I think, I think that's what's true, right? It's been a while since I did yeah. Christian in research for myself, but I believe that's what's true, right? And yeah. we're, 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 we're in romantic relations with Jesus, <laughs> as far as was she yet? Was she an invented character, or did, did she? What did, was there evidence that they were romantically involved? Uh, not unless you read Dan Brown's book. Uh, no, but there are other books that, that make this claim. Uh, even before Dan Brown popularized it in the in the Da Vinci Code, uh, no, there wasn't. Uh, at least not in that. There's there's no evidence in the biblical text that there was a romantic relationship there. Um, there is evidence in, in Luke's gospel. It says that Mary uh, Magdalena um, was financing Jesus and the disciples in in um, uh, Luke chapter eight. It says that um, she and uh, two other women that are and are named, and then some other women were paying their bills because it, you can't just walk. It's like touring today. You have to pay. You have expenses when you're traveling around. So, And if, if Jesus isn't working, who's paying for the places where they're staying? Who's buying their food? Uh, you know, who's, who's paying for the food for donkeys and things? Well, Mary was one of those people. Um, we, yes, Mary Magdalena, but that really just means Mary, the one from Magdala, which, which is a town on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. Um, that's to distinguish her from all the other Marys yeah. that existed at that time. So how does she come across Jesus? How does she become, like you said, finance his career, to put it that way? Um, she's probably a wealthy woman, uh, or at least middling, middle-class woman who is interested in philosophy, interested in, you know, as a thinker and, um, uh, has access to, to her own funds. And so we know because of some Augustan laws, uh, that came in pri- uh, prior to when Jesus was born, um, there were opportunities during the first century for women, um, to gain a little bit of independence for, over their finances. And so we meet, a number of these women in the Bible, uh, Phoebe, who's funding Paul, Lydia, who has her own household, uh, Chloe, who has her own household. And I put Mary into that category. Um, in Luke, she's grouped with Susanna, the wife of Chusa, who is the chief steward of Herod. This is not an insignificant position. He's basically the treasurer for, for one of Herod the Great's sons. Um, that gives She's probably fairly well off as well. So Jesus and his disciples are being funded by these well-off people. 
the one thing that Mary is not is she's not a prostitute, mm. but she becomes a prostitute in the third century in the tradition. And uh, there's, a, there's a whole interesting history there. But but early on in the text, there's no indication at all that she was involved in prostitution or that that's how she got her money. That That's, that's a later fabrication. So and the, I think the last character we have to discuss as well is, of course, Pontius Pilatus, who is one of perhaps one of the most controversial characters in the Bible, even though he doesn't appear much, is a huge significance in the story. And uh, I wanted this, I was watching a documentary quite a while ago on, on Pontius Pilatus, and in the Bible he's proclaimed as, portrayed, sorry, portrayed as weak, right? He's, yeah. he's not a very strong character, but in, in if you go into real life there, he was just a senator doing his job, right? He was persecuting yeah. criminals. That's what he, that was he had yeah. to do to keep the law and order in Jerusalem, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and probably um, like like all Roman administrators out in, in provinces, he, he probably would prefer to be anywhere else. Well, no, he probably preferred to be in Rome. Um, but he would know that he had to... Um, uh, he had to serve a certain amount of time in different provinces. And, and, and this, this is what this was common if you wanted to become a senator, right? You had to yeah, serve, yeah. serve five years abroad, I think, to yeah. become a Roman senator, a governor somewhere. If, yeah, if you're going to move up the food chain, so you already had to be elite. Mm. And then to move up the food chain and, yes, eventually get to be a senator, you had to do your service. And you made some money along the way through taxation. Um, so I don't, I don't necess- think he's necessarily weak, um, but the, you're right. The Bible does portray him that way as being weak. You know, his wife tells him what to do based on a dream and he lets the crowds tell him what to do. He, he's not presented as a very strong. I'm a very good friend in Rome. Exactly. Yes, got, again, Monty Python uh, gets that kind of weakness there and satirizes it well. You uh, find it funny when I say. Because- but they. They, um, there is evidence for his existence, and that's one of the interesting pieces. There was an inscription with his name on, found in Caesarea Maritima. Hmm. So, so that that and that and and um, the reference in Tac- Tacitus mentions hmm. um, the Jewish um, uh, uh, a Messiah being uh, Christ hmm. called Christus, a misspelling, uh, crucified. Um, it's interesting. You had said that. Um, that uh, they persecuted them, but because of Roman law. So I try and avoid that word persecution mm-hmm. and say prosecuted, because actually the that he, we, their laws were harsh, but he had every right to prosecute them. In the same way, if you drive too fast on a road and you get pulled over by the police for speeding, you can't say you were persecuted. You were prosecuted. And like you said, and, and this is a joke in life of Brian as well, and like where Brian says that he... He's a Roman citizen, but they don't believe him. So he's just crucified. And you cannot be crucified like we talked about if you're a Roman citizen. But yeah. Jesus wasn't a Roman citizen, was he? No, no not at all. No, um, it would be very rare for a Jewish person to be a Roman citizen. You would, you would, um, you really would have to have, have, at that time, at that time, citizenship was more difficult to, to obtain. And um, you would have had to marry into it or, you know, buy your way in the way it said that, that, 
Um, some people uh, do in Acts, it mentions it. Uh, being born into it would give you more status than if you purchased it. But it's unlikely some, you know, a, a carpenter's son from the backwaters of the Galilee wouldn't have been a Roman citizen. So now we have to talk about the before the crucifixion as well, when Pilatus says, should I free Jesus or this other random guy that right. you, you don't really want? Yeah. Did, yeah. Is there I mean, evidence for this that this was this kind of a common thing, like this guy or this other guy? Should, who should we crucify? Uh, there's there's evidence that a, a governor could have clemency that way, but not that this was a um, an actual regularized practice that and and that it would have fallen to Jesus or Barabbas. Again, I th- think that's that story is there to highlight just how. Um, how harshly all the people had turned against Jesus. Mm-hmm. And at this point in, in uh, the story, in Matthew and in John's gospel, it's, this is where um, the writings themselves become horrifically anti-Semitic. And, and those texts have been used throughout history um, as a wep- have been weaponized against Jews uh, to say, you know, oh, it's your fault that, that the Romans killed Jesus. Christians aren't very good at nothing to show, are they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like forgetting that the Romans had full autonomy and acted. Mm-hmm. They would never would have been pushed around by a Jewish mob mm-hmm. to do what the Jewish mob wanted. And Jesus was killed as a Roman political prisoner. So, um, but the stories are structured in a way that says, "Oh, it's the fault of the Jews at that time." And then throughout history, those texts have been used by Christians to persecute the Jews for being at fault. Whereas re- it's very clear historically, it's a Roman execution, not a Jewish execution. Of course, we, something that we have to talk about, and we, I heard this on the, another podcast as well, and I think it was on, I don't know about that, but with Jim Jeffries, I think a while ago, he was talking about religion last year, I think. And uh, they, they said that, uh, and with, I, I keep bringing this up, but I feel like it's important to bring up that there was a lot of messiahs around. So why did Jesus really... Did he, but first, I actually want to ask, did he intend to create a whole new religion or that, was that by accident? The uh, short answer is no, he did not. I, I think that was by accident. Um, did he? Was he attempting to reform Judaism, to bring it back to its roots? Sure, yeah, I think he was trying to do that. I don't think he was trying to um, break it off into a new religion. Um, I think that all of that comes later on. Uh, So why did he then get attention drawn to himself? There are some stories in the text, like when he goes to the Jerusalem temple and he overturns tables of the money changers. That's a political act, a, a, a highly visible political act. That's the kind of thing that gets you arrested by the Romans. So, he either did that or something like that that drew attention to himself mm-hmm. um, because there were a lot of people, as you say, messiahs walking around saying stuff and the Romans ignored them. So Jesus must have done something to draw attention to himself mm-hmm. beyond sort of the, I, I want to look beyond what the Bible says it is because there they have, you know, Jewish leadership getting involved and, 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 and Judas betraying him, that seems to me to be very contrived. But actions like overturning a temple, a table in the temple, that will get you arrested. Hmm. So how, 
so we have we have to talk about after as well and after Jesus and how did the Bible New Testament or as I call it the reboot the reboot the reboot to come about yeah um so it, it took about 350 years beyond the death of Jesus a little bit more to come up with the New Testament that we know um, I think early on the earliest texts we have in the New Testament are actually the letters of Paul and he wrote those letters to communities that he founded to help them grow and develop. But even in those letters, he thought Jesus was coming back in his, during his lifetime. He truly believed that, that Jesus had died and, and gone, had been raised from the dead and was going to return. And this would be the end of the world. And this is how Paul is like other Jewish um that does not uh, technically make Jesus a supervillain, though, that he's going to destroy the world. Um, if you, it does, if you like the world, it doesn't if you don't like the world. Mm. And so um, for someone like Paul or other apocalyptic people, it was uh, what, what was going to happen is God was going to restore the world to where it should be because people like the Romans had made it worse. Mm. So then what did the uh, Romans ever do for us? Exactly. Yeah. Except for all of these things, what have they ever yeah. done? Um, but you see, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much they've done. People wanted, you know, God to be back in charge. And in, in a sense, they wanted not to be under Roman occupation. So this is what they really were imagining. And when that didn't happen, and people like Paul started dying, they had to rethink the timeline. And it's at that point that they said, hey, we should write down some of the stories about Jesus. We better write down some of the things he said so we don't forget them. So it's not until um, probably the earliest gospel is Mark. It was probably written to, to around the year 70, 68 to 70 of the first century. So this is 35, 40 years after Jesus said and did these things. That's a long time. There were probably some other people that wrote notes and things down before that that mark might have used but it's not until they realize the end of the world is not happening that they say we need some stories and for them to become the new testament takes another 250 years so what is the oldest version of the new testament because today we have all this different interpretation like the king james bible for example because the catholic yeah. bible because the protestant bible you know the yeah. orthodox bible to mention just some yeah. Version. So, what what is the earliest version? Have you read the earliest version of the Bible? Uh, well, let's just put it this way: we don't have any of the originals. There's a fragment from the Gospel of John. It's a small piece of papyrus, which is what they used to write on, um, called P fifty two papyrus number fifty two, and it that fragment comes from maybe the year one hundred and twenty five. That would be the earliest evidence we have for a piece of the New Testament. We don't actually get a full New Testament in a, in a book until much later, until the, the fourth and fifth century. We get lots of pieces and fragments of it before that. Mm. Um, but that's, of course, all in Greek. And then it gets getting translated into Aramaic and, and Armenian and Syriac and Coptic. Um, but we don't get, you know, in English, the first um, uh, English translation isn't until uh, you know, 15, 1600s, when people are doing, you know, German, French, English translations, so people could start reading it on their own. And because Latin was, especially in the Catholic uh, Church, right, Latin was the prominent 
Yeah. Right. So I, I, you, we talked about this in the, briefly in the Holy Roman episode, Empire episode as well, that the, the Christianity was mostly for the rich people who actually yeah. knew Latin, right? Yeah. Yeah, Jerome uh, translated the, the Greek and Hebrew into Latin, and that became used in church and carried on when, when the split between um, Orthodox and, and the rest of the church in, in the year 1000-ish, and then in Protestants when they split under Mar when Martin Luther in the 16th hundreds, or in the, in the 16th century, um, the, what, what was today the Catholic Church maintained sort of... Um, uh, credence in that Latin text. Because there's an extra chapter and that in between the Bible and yeah. the Old Testament in the Catholic Church, I believe. Yeah, and the Catholic Church has an extra seven books, and the Orthodox Church has those seven plus an extra one. Hmm. So, um, yeah, if you ask a Catholic how many books are in their Bible, it's it's more than a Protestant. Hmm. And it's, um, it, these texts God are... Damn, that's more to read. That's more to read. But they have, it, it's why, say, the, the um, doctrine of purgatory, which is only in the Catholic Church, comes out of one of those books that Protestants don't have. Mm. So, so, and I, I wanted to refer to Jim Jeffers' podcast again, the episode that talked about religion, because something I found fascinating, because the Christianity prevailed. It wasn't easy to be a Christian the first 300 years under yeah. Romans. You had, and like you talked about, Nero, who persecuted the Christians. and. Yeah. They were pretty much persecuted. And I read The Darkening Age, but I don't remember the author. It's behind me right here, but I don't remember the author's name. But she talked about, and this is, of course, she claims that it was over-exaggerated, that they, it almost became, what's the word for it? They hoped almost to get sacrificed, that there was disappointment if their son didn't get sacrificed for a Christian cause almost the first 300 yeah. years. But when... Christian. Sorry for talking not quite a lot now. Sorry for if you, you have to hear my voice quite a lot now. But when Constantine became Christian and Christianized Rome, and then again, this is what to say said in the Jim Jeffers podcast. They just had to find trying to find a random place in. Oh, this is where this is where Jesus came from, right? Yeah. And this is where he died on the cross, right here. Yeah, just attract tourists more more or less. Like oh, this is where. He died. This is a cave, and and that when you go to Jerusalem, there is all this. I haven't been there, but he said that when you go there, is all so many different places that oh, this is the true Mary that yeah. died and came to life, and so many places that claims to be the cave that he died in, right? Yeah, yeah. This is um the 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 finding of uh holy sites by Constantine's mother is just as you said. It was mm -hmm. she kind of went out there to find places for pilgrims to go to and then also found things like pieces of the cross mm -hmm. that were given to churches across the empire so that if you couldn't go to Jerusalem, you could go to one of these churches. Oh, the Holy Lance as well. Yeah. Yeah. The Lance, the chalice, which, you know, supposedly has been lost, which Indiana Jones was um, among mm -hmm. many others was looking for. Um, this is all, this is how you make a religion, the, um, the religion of empire. And, um, you know, Constantine decided, I think, for for highly political reasons, that Christianity would be useful in his in his solidification of his power, and so he declared Christianity would now be licit. Um, he he didn't ban Constantine himself didn't ban other religions, but he he said Christianity would no longer be uh, prosecuted 
under the law, uh, with a law that forbade certain kinds of religious practice. And so then, but that's not enough. You need to do something special to highlight it. And I think what he did is, you know, his mother at least was deployed to go and, uh, find all these, you know, find all these sites mm. uh, to draw pilgrims there and to sort of show how important Christianity was. Mm. Now, there, this is, uh, there is in Sonoria, I believe, and there's a Norwegian crusader in, in the, during the first crusade, and Tidur Yurzafar, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He said said his he went to, he was a first king and we said this in the previous podcasts I think, but he was the first king to go to Jerusalem to go to crusading and he got a part of the through cross apparently but it, it dates back go back thousand years again to this day to twenty twenty early twenty tens they did a DNA scan on the through cross to find out if it was a spoiler alert it wasn't. <laughs> So the the this story goes that if you took all the pieces of the cross that are in churches across mostly Europe, the the actual historical cross was one mile high and half a mile wide. Mm. That, that's how many pieces there are, which you know is is impossible an impossibility. But all if so, it's clearly not every piece. Jesus of- must have been tall. Yeah. Well, there is a second. There's a second century um, document that has a cross that's as tall as the clouds. So maybe it's true, but I think not. Um, there's way too much wood out there to have been the real cross. There's a Some joke. of it might have been. I doubt that. There is a joke by the Norwegian comedian, and he where he talks about how people have grown a few centimeters, like every century we grow a little more. And it makes sense that Jesus should walk on water, he says, because he was just tiny little person. He was uh, so light that he could have just walked in the water because it was so tiny. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, and it, it, it would also explain why Peter got knocked over by a wave, just mm. couldn't, couldn't stand up to it. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the, that was one of the curious things in the 1800s when they, they believed those stories were true but the, they weren't miracles. And they said, oh, well, Jesus knew where the sandbank was under just underneath the surface of the water. So he's actually walking on a sandbank. And Peter doesn't know, so he goes the wrong way and falls in the water. Uh-huh, I, I think I just cool you now. Yeah. I, I think it's easier just to say the story was made up. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. I, think we, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Before I go, do you have anything you you want to promote on the social media where people might find you? If you and links you want me to put in the description before you go. Uh no, thank you for having me on this. I'm not I'm not much on social media. All I do watch podcasts like yours. Um, so I'd say uh, I'm not trying to compete with you. So keep mm-hmm. up the good work. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on. This has been with that age well. We are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, in Instagram with that age well. Please like, share, subscribe. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please write a review. That will help us out a lot. And I hope you like this episode. Please check out some of the other episodes we have. You're definitely going to find something you like. This has been with that age well. My name is Alan. I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.